Hi. We're good? Okay. Doesn't sound like we're on, but Mark says we're on, so we're on. Um, there we go. That sounds a lot better. Um, so, Jackie asked me to teach tonight, and I was sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to do? I've got about two days' notice, and um, I don't really, you know, I kind of, in college I did my best work at the last minute, but I try to avoid that. Um, so I was sitting there thinking, okay, Lord, what do you want me to, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to, to teach? And I've been going through a lot in my life right now about trying to, to learn to keep God first, to put God first, and make sure he stays first um, at all times. And so we've been studying in the college group, we've been studying um, in Hebrews the last three, four, five weeks. And so I kind of just dug back in, and, and we've spent five weeks in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, and so I joke with Jackie, I'm, I'm, I'm gunning for him, I'm, I'm kind of taking his track there. But there's so much in there, and I'm going to take my stab, my best stab at, at going over it just one uh, in one week, one chapter. So that's where we're going to be tonight. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, if you'll open them to the letter to the Hebrews. And we will uh, we'll just read chapter 1 and just kind of see where it goes. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up. And they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the letter to the Hebrews uh, and for the person who wrote it, whoever he or she might be, um, that you inspired them to write this letter which shows just so much the once and for all sacrifice uh, of Jesus and that it was sufficient for all of us, Lord. Um, I just pray as we dig into your word tonight that uh, you will speak to each of us in in a new way uh, and have us consider things that we might not have considered before, Lord. I pray that you till the soil of our hearts and that uh, we would hear a clear word from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, at the time that this was being written, apparently, um, there was what's called pre-Gnosticism. You know, Gnosticism basically said, you know, everything temporal is evil and only spiritual is good. Um, everything, you know, and and... That was kind of one of the one of the big things that they had to fight against in the second, third, fourth century. So it hadn't taken its full root there, but you see some kinds of things through here that had some issues there. Um, also, some weird things about trying to worship angels and, and all these other things um, doesn't sound a whole heck of a lot different than from the, some of the things that we deal with today, right? And so um, God had somebody, whoever it was, you know, we don't know for sure. It could have been somebody writing down a sermon of Paul or it could have been Barnabas or Apollos or Priscilla or Aquila or Luke or take your pick. We don't know. But the point is that God saw fit and knew that we would need this kind of letter, uh, timeless, basically. It was is- there were issues then, there were issues now. Uh, there are issues all kinds of in-between about people that are having 
these kinds of just weird, out there, not true things about what we're supposed to be worshiping, who is Jesus, you know, is he just one thing that we place here, or what do we do? And so he, God talks about it. Um, in verse 1 he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And I want to zero in on that phrase, in times past. The Greek word that the author uses there is palai, and it means former, properly designated in the past. Essentially, what it means is it's relegated to the past forever. God spoke in the past to the prophets, or to his people through the prophets, but he does not speak to his people like that anymore. It's done in the past, gone, old covenant, you know, whatever you want to call it there. He, he does not speak through prophets to his people anymore, any longer. The final Old Testament prophet was John the baptizer. He was the, the last one on the other side of the Old Covenant, on the other side of the cross. Jesus is the final revelation from God. So what's going on is people here are, are hearing, well, thus saith the Lord this, God has told me this, and they're trying to teach it as a form of doctrine or some new scriptural teaching that nobody knew about before then. And the gist of this is if anybody does that, Run the other way as fast as you can because it clearly says God spoke in times past through the prophets to his people. He does not do it anymore. And the reason he does not do it anymore is in verse 2 because he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And I'm going to camp on the first part of that verse because Jesus is the final revelation of God. God has spoken and said everything he has wanted to say to us through Jesus. And, you know, people come through here and say that, you know, that this means now that the canon is closed. I'm not convinced that that's what the author meant because they were still writing scripture at that point. But we know now that it, that it is. But Jesus was the final revelation. Everything we need to know about God, we know from seeing his son. Uh, in the last days is talking about the, the doctrine of imminent return. It means Jesus can come at any time. The minute he ascended into heaven, the last days began. And almost 2,000 years later, we're still here, but we're still in the last days. And until he comes back, we're going to be in the last days. That's the way that the, that the, the Jews, when they were writing this, worded that. They viewed present age was basically you know, the, this one age, and then now the kingdom age is you know, the, the next age. So we're, we're in these last days until Jesus comes back, and then obviously we're with him in the kingdom age forever. Um, you know, Jesus is the embodiment of what God wants to say to us. He has the last word. And again, like it says in verse 1, if anybody comes saying, thus saith the Lord, X, Y, and Z, run the other way, because Jesus has had the last word. Um, John 1, 1, we all know that, says, in the beginning, the word was with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, word in there is the word most of you guys will know. That's logos. You know, some people derive the word logo from that as Jesus is the logo of God. What he is is he is the perfect expression of the idea or the thought of the character of God to us. Jesus was the logo of God. Everything he ever wanted us to know about him can be found in Jesus. When Jesus is telling his disciples in John chapter 14, I'm going to go make a place for you. Um, so that you can come and, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and, and, and all of this. You know, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. And he turns around and says, Philip, you've been with me three years and you still don't realize this. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so I, I sat there, I want to go over some, just some statements that Jesus made that I think are really good about how God has spoken to us through, through Christ. So, um, these are typically classes, the I am statements of the book of John. But it's really powerful and just talks about everything that Jesus said. Um, in Exodus 3.14, when Moses is arguing with God and says, okay, you know, you convinced me to do all this. I'm going to go. I'm going to do this. But suppose they ask who sent me. What should I tell them your name is? And God says, I am who I am. He said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus makes... Seven key statements, but there are a few others that he basically says, you know, ego I me, I am this. Or before Abraham was, 
I am, or except that you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So he's making that exclusive claim to God. The first one is in John chapter 6, verse 35, says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now this is coming right off the back of Jesus feeding the 5,000 on the mountain with the two fish and the, you know, the loaves of bread. and They had 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple who was like, God, how are you going to pull this off? And they were still, you know, show us a sign that you're the Messiah. Show us a sign you're the, that you're the Messiah. And Jesus is just like, you guys are just here because you want my food. You don't want me. And so they start talking about the bread of life and, and manna and all this, and Jesus says this. He turns us around and says, I am the bread of life. Anybody who comes to me, you're never going to be hungry. You're never going to be thirsty. And so God is that provision for us. When he gave it to the Israelites in the desert, they had just what they needed for that day. And that sustained them until the next day. The exception, obviously, is Friday because they had to get one extra for the Sabbath. But uh, the point is God sustains everybody, gives everything they need every day. Uh, through Jesus, I, I am the bread of life. I am what you need every day. You know, your daily bread, as he asked for in the Lord's Prayer. The second one is in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus is proclaiming this through the festival of lights. Um, they would light up this huge, you know, light from the temple, basically, that everybody could see. It would draw the attention from miles around because the temple's up on the mountain in Jerusalem. And people could see it from miles away during this celebration. And Jesus turns this around and basically says, I am that light. I am the light of the world. I shine everything. I bring illumination to everything. If you don't have me, you're in darkness. But if you have me, you will walk in the light, and you'll walk in the light of life. And I don't know about you guys, but I have seen that time and again when I'm running around doing my own thing, like, no, God, I'll come back later. Do, you, know, just, you, you just hang tight right there. I'll be back in about 10 minutes. I'm going to go do this fun thing over here, and then I'll get back with you. I run over there, and I'm in complete darkness, just falling over, making a complete fool out of myself, not knowing what's going on, which way is up, or any of that kind of stuff. And then when I get back and realize, boy, God, that was really dumb that I ran over here and told you to sit back here and, and just wait for me. Uh, a, he's still there, which is awesome. <coughs> Excuse me. And B, he illuminates my life. He shows the parts of our lives that are dark um, that he wants to bring that light to, that he wants to shine so that we can walk in the complete light of life. Um, In chapter 10 of John, he goes on and he says, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. He's using his big, this is his big good shepherd parable here. Um, But he's talking about the way that that the shepherd pens were set up, were that they were all hedged kind of big, you know, rocks, wood, whatever they had at the time, to to build. And then there was a door, and that's where the shepherd would sleep to try to keep the the wolves out because it was the one spot that, that wasn't secure. Um, he says, anybody who tries to come in any other way is a robber, but he who comes through me can come in and out and go and find good pasture. This is an allusion to the kingdom of heaven. Anybody who goes through Jesus, he's the only way to get in and go in and find that good pasture. Acts 4.12 you know, says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus. He is the way in. He is the way out. Um, and God is just saying, he goes on to say in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. The shepherds were hired men responsible for the safety and, and the well-being of the flock. And God uses the shepherd analogy a lot of times in Scripture um, because sheep, you, hear, you argue if they're really smart or really stupid, but either be that as it may, they need a lot of help. They, they need the shepherd to guide them so they don't run into the water, so they don't fall in a hole or any of these other kinds of, kinds of things. And so Jesus is our good shepherd. He leads us, he guides us, like Psalm 23 says, but he also lays down his life to protect the sheep, just like David did when he fought the lion. And the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, that, uh, that's kind of, yeah, the bear. There you go, thank you. I was looking, what's the other animal? Uh, I've, been wa- I've been watching videos with the kids and they only show the lion, so I always forget the other one. But 
the, the point is that that good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He, he's generous. He's selfless. He's thinking about the well-being of the sheep more so even than the well-being of himself. And that's the entire reason Jesus came. He didn't have to come. He could have just sat up there in the throne, you know, the right hand of, right hand of the Father and just been like, okay, you know, I'm just going to hang out here and, and, and be God and, and chill out. And, you know, you guys, you're on your own. But, no, he came, he came for us. And that was the most selfless act that anybody could, uh, could perform. Because, you know, we're all sheep. We, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do it. We can't get out of our own way. Uh, Half the time, all of the time. He goes on to say in, in chapter 11, 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, and even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now, this is kind of an interesting passage because Lazarus has just died. And Jesus stayed behind and then came on the fourth day, which is when decay set in. And Martha's like, you know, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I know God will give you whatever he whatever you ask of him. So she's imploring him, please give me my brother back. And this is how Jesus answers. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, if he believes in me, you know, though he may die, he'll live. And in the end, he'll never die. And they go through, and he says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he will rise again at the last day. So they're talking about the whole resurrection thing here. Um, Jesus raises Lazarus to demonstrate his power from, from uh, raised him from the dead to, to demonstrate his power, but he also confirmed her belief in that resurrection. And Jesus is the firstborn of that resurrection of the dead. So he demonstrates this is what God wants for us. He wants this kind of ultimate life for us over here when we get to heaven and we've all got our resurrected bodies and it's going to be just so amazingly awesome I can't even really try to, to describe how, how stoked I am for getting there one day and, but that's the life that he wants us to have You know, John 10.10 10 says I've come that they've had life and that's the kind of life that he wants to that he wants to give us uh, John 14.6 as I mentioned before I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father except through me Jesus is telling the disciples hey, I'm going away but don't worry, you know, I'll come back and I'm going to come back and get you and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to take you there myself. And they ask to know the way in which he goes and that's his answer. It's, it's another overt expression of exclusivity. Jesus is just saying, hey, guess what? You know, I Look at all this stuff I've taught you, all these things. I'm going to go make a place for you. I'm going to bring you, I'm going to receive you to myself. But you have to trust me. You can't trust yourselves, you can't trust anything else. It's... It, I am that way. And so all this time he's expressing the heart of God toward his people as good and loving and generous and merciful and just and he's keeping one eye on the big picture out, out here. Uh, the last I am statement says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. And this is a command, it's John 15, 5. And it says, you know, Jesus is commanding him to abide, to follow, to rest. God sustains all of us if we're on that, if we're on that branch. You guys see the, you know, the fruit or the flowers in bloom on the plants and the trees out here. And as long as they're still attached to that plant and that plant is still going strong, everything's good. And, but the minute you pick the apple off the tree or you, or you pop the the head of, of that rose off that bush, it's good for a little bit, but it starts to die in that moment because it needs to stay attached. It's just like we are. We need to stay attached to that vine. Uh, otherwise, we shrivel up and we are basically no good for anything but firewood and uh, we get just chucked to the side. But the great part is we get grafted back in. That's another picture of God's heart. Anytime we realize this, that we've broken off, that we've been plucked from that vine and our branch is starting to wither, we cry out to God, he grafts us right back in and we're good to go again. So those are some of the ways that, that I believe God spoke to us through Jesus. It was always about the end result um, and there is some process in there too, but it, it's just his heart of 
come to me. You know, I, I will protect you. I will look out for you. I will lay down my life for you. I will allow you uh, through my power to do amazingly great and glorious and awesome things in my name. And, but it has to all run through me, through Jesus, through the Son, and, and through God. The second half of that, that verse talks about whom he, the Father, has appointed heir of all things. Um, and the Greek word there is keronimos, um, is the Greek word for heir. Um, it's usually used referring to messianic heirship. Um, it's one who receives his allotted possession by right of sonship. So he's showing specifically here that he is the son of God. He is the rightful son of God. Um, and it's, a, and it's important to distinguish this, and Jackie touched on it on, um, on Easter Sunday a little bit. Um, we're also sons and daughters of God, but we are so under the spirit of adoption. Jesus is the son by direct relationship, and there is a difference there. Um, Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then when Jesus greets Mary Magdalene in the garden, he makes that distinction clear. He tells her in John 20, 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, different, to my God and your God. It's a different distinction. It's same Father, same God, but there is a difference in relationship just because of who Jesus is. He is the rightful Son of God, and as I said in John chapter 1, verse 1, he is God. He, he claimed throughout the book of John to be God. Through whom he also made the worlds. Uh, John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1, 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So it says that Jesus created everything. Oh, wait, I thought God the Father created everything. Guess what? He did. <laughs> Isaiah forty four twenty four. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. This is a distinct description. This passage is, is talking about at least two parts of the Trinity. We also know that the Holy Spirit made the world. <laughs> but Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And John 8.58, which I said before, Before Abraham was, Ego I me, I am. So Jesus is claiming Godship. You know, he is the Son of God. He is not God the Father. But there's just unity there in that. Um, so... This declares that there are at least two manifestations of God, and the third is evident in the Holy Spirit, which also created the world. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Some translate that the, the Spirit. Genesis 1, 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Job 26, 13 uh, says, By his Spirit he adorned the heavens. So all of this is involved. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, <coughs> excuse me, all involved in creation, all involved in this really crazy, awesome union of, union of the Trinity. But the point is, it's, they're all God. They're all responsible for making the world, for upholding the world, and everything there. Verse 3 says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the expressed image of his person, again, goes back to John 1.1. 1, 1. He's the expression of the thought or idea of the character of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the firstborn word there... Um, speaks of preeminence. It means he is first in all things, not that he's a, he is a created being. And he upholds all of these things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Psalm 75.3, 
The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. And Ecclesiastes 8.4 says, Where the word of a king is, there is power. And Jesus is, Jesus is my king and your king, uh, king of the universe, along with God the Father. And what he says goes. He holds everything by the word of his power. That's why I believe when Peter writes about everything dissolving in fervent heat one day, I think Jesus is just going to stop upholding it. He's just going to say, okay, time to go. Everything's done. And that's going to be it. And he himself purged our sins. Um, we'll jump ahead in Hebrews 7.27. says, who does, not, who does not need daily, speaking of Jesus, as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Um, Hebrews 9.12-14 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and the goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus himself purged our sins. It's the same, it's kind of the same way that he, you know, he created everything and God created everything and the Holy Spirit created everything. You know, Jesus gave himself up, but that was also God's plan and the Holy Spirit was involved to help him fulfill his ministry on earth. Um, the same way that you'll see in scripture, God raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and guess what? Jesus raised himself from the dead. So he is all powerful through this whole thing. Um, and this is what the writer is trying to convey. You know, Jesus is the supreme revelation of God, but he's also got all of this power and everything there. He's purged our sin. Now he's sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, sitting on his throne. Like Revelation 3.21 says, he's sitting there right now. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 1 Peter 3.22, Romans 8.34 also say, you know, Jesus is just sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He's making intercession for us. And that was his reward, as it were, for being the sacrifice, for validating uh, that he, in fact, was God in the flesh come down to rescue us from our situation. And he sits there and he has become so much better than the angels, not that he ever was not because he's God, but he, you know, he, the Greek word there is ginomai. It speaks of the universe coming into existence, which, you know, Jesus being preexistent and preeminent. But specifically, this refers to the glorification of Jesus after his resurrection. Now, he always was better than the angels because he's God. But when he came to earth, he came in the form of a man, and he willfully set aside some of his divine, you know, his divine rights. Uh, everything he did on earth, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he didn't just push the God button and say, okay, I can do all these things. You know, he, the, he used the Spirit to demonstrate his humanity because otherwise he wouldn't be able to relate to us in any way. Um, so becoming better than the angels, again, like I said, not that he wasn't or isn't, is just an expression of him having his glorified body and retaking his rightful place at the right hand of God. Um, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, also refers to the sonship of God um, and the messianic angle of sonship rather than the eternal angle, though both are valid. So it's kind of re repeating, you know, appointed heir of all things in verse 2. Um, now, the next passage from 5 all the way to 14, the end of chapter 1, is really a ton of Old Testament that's being, that's being rehashed, um, applied all over the place. Um, things that were written, were looking forward, and were written kind of like you read them, kind of like, that's kind of weird. But you go back and they're going through and rereading the scriptures uh, that they had, the Old Testament, um, after Jesus had come, died, and resurrected and ascended, and they were reading it, and suddenly all these passages really made sense uh, because they didn't really before. You're kind of looking at it like, what is this talking about? You know, the Lord said to, to my Lord, but God's one, and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
Um, you know, God said that to his son. He didn't say that to any angels. So <clears throat> if we're worshiping Jesus, there's no point to be worshiping any of these angels. And I would go so far to say as, as the second half of that, which is quoting out of Second Samuel, I believe David knew that. Um, so I'm going to read this real quick for you. This is Second Samuel chapter 7, um, verses 8 to 24. This is David's talking about, I, w- I would really like to build a temple for the Lord. And God says no, but this is what he promises to David, um, speaking to the prophet Nathan. He says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. You, according to all that we have heard with our ears, Sorry, I skipped a line there. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. There's one part in there where, where he talks about if he commits iniquity. And I believe that's speaking about Jesus taking on our sin and becoming sin for us. Um, because obviously he did not commit sin, um, but in fact became sin for us. But I believe that David's reaction there indicates that he knew what God meant by what God said. And... Um, that's the only way that I can explain the reaction that he has because otherwise David was a very worshipful and, and skilled uh, songwriter and musician and all of these things. And he <coughs> suddenly is just, I got nothing, God. That, that's awesome. Thanks. I, I, yeah. So he's completely speechless and doesn't, doesn't really know what to say. Um, you know, he's an articulate man being more or less lost for words, but that shows that he understands as, as well as we can in our, you know, futile thinking, uh, the enormity of what God was promising to him, that, that the Messiah was going to come through his descendants and that kingdom was going to be set up forever. So these are the things that, that God is saying to Jesus. And again, when he brings that firstborn into the world, um, like verse 6 says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the firstborn is a sign of preeminence. It's not necessarily the first biological kid. Um, obviously, Jesus is preexistent. He's not created. So firstborn, when it's assigned to him, uh, refers to that preeminence. But it's also talking about, you know, there are other people in the Bible that it talks about. Jacob was the secondborn, but he is referred to in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, as the firstborn. Um, Judah is the fourth of Jacob's 12 sons, but he is the preeminent one through whom Messiah will come. Uh, Isaac was the secondborn. Ishmael was first, but Isaac was the one that God chose um, to continue his people's line through. 
Um, David in Psalm 89.27. Ephraim in Jeremiah 31.9. Ephraim was Joseph's second son, but he was referred to as firstborn and preeminent in Jeremiah. So the Bible's covered uh, in the Old Testament especially with this concept of, of preeminence or preference, as it were. Um, not necessarily being, hey, I was the first one, so... You know, that, that's the only definition of firstborn ever. No, um, God continually just chose who he chose, whether it was the firstborn or the fourthborn or the eleventhborn or, or, or whatever to, to, go, to go through there. Um, there's a reference, that, the reference that the writer is quoting there, you'll see um, some of your Bibles will have it indented in there and, and italicized. Uh, Let all the angels of God worship him. That's from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, verse 43. Now, we'll read it, and we'll see, and it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. I tripped on that a little bit, because I'm sitting there thinking, wait, where is the let all the angels of God worship him? That doesn't match up. But what happened was it's something that was just lost in translation as we, as we go through um, some of the expressions and the idioms take on different meanings or different words in English coming from there. But when the, when the Hebrew, um, when they translated everything from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek to form the Septuagint, that was what it said. Um, New Testament's obviously all written in Greek, um, and Greek was the common language of the time, uh, right around the first century and second century and all that. So, um, it was in there in the Septuagint, and just over the years, the words changed, and so it ended up you know, kind of like telephone. If I tell Rick something, and Rick tells Kristen something, and you know, go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. By the time it gets back to Jason back there, it's going to be something completely different from what I said. <laughs> but um, that's the way it ends up in there. But you know, you, you see more points of the angels giving worship to God it, in Luke chapter two when Jesus is born. The whole host of heaven breaks out singing glory to God in the highest. They're worshiping the fact that Jesus is born um, and ascribing value to that. That's all the word worship means is just ascribing worth or value to a person or an object above other, above other things. Um, and the thing with comparing Jesus to angels here, this is a big point because you'll hear some folks nowadays will say, Oh, Jesus, is, Jesus was an angel. You know, this, 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 and this. And you say, wait, no. Um, And here's one of the key points, because uh, Jesus freely received worship. Jackie talked about on Sunday when when the demoniac from the Gadarenes, when he saw Jesus afar off, he comes running over and worships him. I mean, it's the demons within him, but still, Jesus is being worshipped. And he doesn't tell him, hey, don't do that. When Jesus heals the blind man and he wants to worship him, or when he walked on the sea and then got in the boat and everybody falls down and worships him, he doesn't say, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. He's allowing them to express their, you know, their worship of him freely and is not telling them not to do that. But when you get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, and, and John is writing through all this and says, I fell, at, I fell at his feet, talking about an angel, to worship him. But he says to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And again in chapter 22, verse 8 and 9, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So the angels are redirecting, you know, like... Paul and Barnabas, when they got worshipped by the Greeks, they tore their clothes and said, hey, it ain't us, we're just guys, worship God. The angels say the same thing, we're just angels, worship God. But Jesus, in Revelation chapter 5, um, verses 11 through 13, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. That just means there were a lot, John couldn't count them saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. 
So the angels are worshiping Jesus, and they're telling us not to worship them, but to worship Jesus. So this kind of should have, in theory, nipped this whole uh, angel worship thing in the bud. (coughs) To the angels, he says, verse 7 of chapter 1 here, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Verse 8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That um, is a direct quote from Psalm 45, uh, 6 and 7. Jesus also, again, um, being explicitly referred to as God here and being distinguished, kind of like we were talking about my God and your God, my Father and your Father. There is a distinction, but he is very much God. Um, and leaning on this Old Testament scripture, the writer could not be more clear in identifying Jesus as God. Just in case the whole beginning part of you know Jesus being the heir of all things and having created and everything wasn't clear enough, he's reinforcing. And as you see in... In Hebrew writing, you know, Paul does this a lot. Jesus does it sometimes too. He'll repeat himself and maybe repeat himself three or four times. And every time he does it, it's kind of like, hey, you know, should be neon lights. Hey, this is important. Pay attention. You know, you don't want to miss this point here. Guess what? He is God. He's not an angel. He's not any of these other things because he didn't say that to the angels. He only says it to to Jesus. So drawing a big distinction there. Verses 10 through 12 kind of do the same thing. It's talking about, you know, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain, and they will grow, all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Uh, that's Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Again, just talking, you know, he created everything. He's speaking to the Son now um, from, from God to Jesus, you know, that you made everything and everything is the work of your hand, but everything, all that's going to pass away. We know everything's going to pass away, but the word of the Lord is going to remain forever. And um, he remains. Everything, the clouds are going to roll back. This whole, everything is going to dissolve and burn up with fervent heat. It's all going to burn at some point. But God and Jesus are eternal. They outlast everything. They've been here before everything and they'll be here after everything is gone. Um, and he's unchanging, and his years himself will not fail. Um, This is all just wrapping up a big, well-put-together, leaning-on-the-Old-Testament idea of Jesus' supremacy um, and his eternal nature. He's supreme over all of creation, including the angels, because, as verse 4 said, he's got a name, a more excellent name than the angels, um, by his inheritance and validating everything that he has said. Um, to which of the angels has he said, again, he talks about Psalm 110.1, going to verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Um, and that's the Lord speaking to my Lord, as it was written in Psalm. God speaking to Jesus, just sit there till I make your enemies your footstool, which is going to be, the end time. That's specifically spoken to Jesus. And then pivoting towards the angels. I think this is really interesting. So pay attention here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Speaking of the angels. So the angels are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. No no prize for that, but everybody picks up, everybody knows who those who will inherit salvation are, right? Hands up if you're in those who will inherit salvation. Everybody's good, good. Yeah, that's us. So, (laughs) in a sense here, um, you know, we live to serve God as this whole part is laying out. But angels exist to worship God and to serve Him, but also, in a sense, to serve us. You know, they, they are here to minister to us. Um, when Jesus went off, you know, I mentioned earlier about him doing all of everything that he did on earth um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through all of his divine you know, rights. He, 
he did all this through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he resisted, when he went to the desert and he had to resist the temptation of Satan, and he always quoted scripture because he was all in the word for him. Um, when Satan left him, what happened? Right? The angels came and they ministered to him. So these angels are ministering spirits. They are... I don't know if watch over us is the right term, but they're they're here to minister and kind of to encourage. Um, In Daniel, it talks about, you know, they're fighting battles and he's, the angel's trying to get to Daniel to to minister to him and to help him as quick as he can, but he's held up for, he's held up for three weeks trying to fight the the Prince of Persia until Michael comes and relieves him, but that's a completely different story. You can come see Jason on Sunday nights to hear more about that. But the idea is just the angels exist to help us and to serve God, um, you know, as as the giver of salvation, and to us as those who will inherit salvation on that day. First um, Corinthians chapter six, speaking in the context of not being able to sort out their own squabbles, Paul says, "Do you guys not know you're going to judge angels one day?" So the angels are, are positionally, um, they will be below us in eternity um, because we'll be the bride of Christ. Um, now, in, in light of that, and I say this because I'm completely guilty of this, it, it, it's complete folly to worship, you know, to worship anything. You know, in this case, it's, it's angel worship. But it, it's complete folly to worship these things that are going to be just so you know, positionally under us or just not worth it or you know, to waste time just chasing after anything else. Um, you know, we find ourselves doing it today. It's... It's going to happen until until we get home, and you know, I, I say to my shame, I'm guilty of it all the time. I do it every day. I put something ahead of, you know, you know, God. I know you want me to spend some time in your Word, but uh, you know, I really just want to sleep five more minutes, or you know, I want to get up and watch the soccer game, or you know, you name it. Put it in here. You guys, you guys all have your things too, but when we when we look at how Jesus is just so much better than all of this stuff and you know he's made everything and he's been given the the inheritance that he's going to you know that he bestows upon us as well as his bride um it's really just kind of foolish uh, to chase after all this stuff ecclesiastes goes through and basically says all this was chasing the wind all this was vanity i tried to do this i tried to do that i i, I I, I sought this, I sought riches, I sought pleasure, I sought wisdom, I sought knowledge, I sought all these other kinds of things. Um, and, it, and it mentions the word vanity over a dozen times in 12 chapters, chasing, chasing all of these things. Um, but that's where we find ourselves a lot. Um, when we've really got just you know, the supreme person... Uh, relationship, everything all rolled into one in Jesus Christ just sitting right in front of us. Um, the embodiment of the character of God. He's saying, I, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. I came. I died for you. I want to protect you. I want to look after you. I want to do all these things. Um, I want to draw you unto myself. But we spend so much time just tearing off after other stuff that... Uh, He's just sitting there, but at the end of the day, when we go away and say, you know, that's cool, Jesus, you hang right there, and we go over here, and we end up, we just end up looking really dumb because it all it's really dumb, you know. It, I might, I might get a fifteen minute, you know, I might get fifteen minutes of joy out of watching that soccer game instead of reading the Word of God, but at the end of it, what did I, what did I accomplish? It's stupid, you know. Two hours and it's over, and then it's kind of like, well, now what? You know, I want the last two hours of my life back and do something productive. Or you know, sleeping for 15 more minutes instead of reading the Word of God. It's like, do I really worship myself that much that I need to give, you know, I need to give self those extra 15 minutes just because maybe I'm a little tired. Uh, or, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I went to bed late because I was doing something else that was not reading the Word of God. I was, you know, playing a computer game or watching TV or just up late or whatever. But <coughs> here's the great part is Jesus is just is just still waiting there for us. You know, he's there's this there's this comic book illustration I like I like a lot of the Christian comics where 
he's, the guy's walking with Jesus, and he's walking along, and there's this big, big billboard sign that says, fun, that way. And he's like, I'm going to go over there. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll be here, don't worry. So he walks, so he walks over, and the guy, you know, the few panels later, he's going over there having all of his fun and all this stuff, and he, he has, he's like, man, this really isn't all that fun. And then he, he kind of trudges back, expecting Jesus not to be there. But Jesus is just like, oh, well, that was a, that was a, that was a good pause. Let's, you know, let's, let's keep going. He's just sitting there waiting for him like nothing had happened and just keeps, keeps walking on down the road. Um, and that's the great thing about our God is that when we screw all this stuff up, he still loves us and he's still got time for us and he's still patient. Uh, I test his patience every day. Um, every hour sometimes. But um, the challenge is um, what Jesus quoted to Satan in the last of his temptations when Satan says, I'll give you all this stuff, you know, the world, everything you can see before it, and Jesus doesn't dispute him because Satan had the title deed at that point. Um, Still does in a sense. But if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so that, that's kind of the, the challenge um, that I want to wrap up for you guys with tonight is Jesus is supreme. The, the writer of Hebrews could not be any more clear about that. Um, He's supreme in everything. He created the world. He, by himself, purged our sins, uh, opened a way for us to have a relationship with him and with God. And he's just so much above any created thing or any other stuff. Uh, but for some reason, we keep seeing our, you know, our eyes on the shiny over here or over there and get distracted but let's, and I, you know, draw the circle and then the circle can go out. Um, I'm talking especially to myself here, but let's, you know, let, let's chew on that uh, this week and say, okay, okay, God, if, if you're really supreme, if I really believe that, that I believe that that is really real, How, how is my life going to change? How am I going to put you on that pedestal, not aside all this other stuff, but you know, up there on your own because you don't, you don't deserve to share that with anybody. There's nothing else that's worthy of sharing that space with you. Um, so I guess, <coughs> excuse me, just... My encouragement is to chew on that and just to realize that God you know, God spoke to us through Jesus. That was the way he chose to do it because Jesus is supreme in all things. And by giving us that ultimate uh, person, I, he said everything he needs to say and we just need to continue just to look at him and, and draw close to him and, and hear his voice and listen to him and spend time with him and all those all those other things and just leave leave the other stuff behind where it's where it belongs really uh, in back of you instead of in front of you um, because then we're going to get to experience all of the things that he wants to say to us and all of the things that he wants to show us in those I am statements um, that abundant life that we can get tastes of here on earth or going in and out and finding pasture and all these other things are all going to just they're just going to come along with it as long as we can keep him center, keep him supreme and preeminent in all things. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pray.